Which part of the Bible would you say contains the gospel? Uh, the, the gospel, the good news, uh, which part of the Bible would you go to to find it? Uh, well, even if you knew nothing about the Bible, if you were to look at the contents page, you would see that the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and the Gospel according to John. And since those books are all in the New Testament, it would seem that the Gospel must be a, a New Testament thing. And that idea would seem to be reinforced if you were to open the first verse of Mark's Gospel, uh, which says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, so is that it? Uh, does the gospel start uh, with the New Testament? Is the Old Testament just, just background uh, to something that would be totally new in the New Testament? Uh, a whole different way of salvation, uh, perhaps? Well, certainly when we get to the New Testament, everything becomes a lot clearer. Uh, We are entering a new era. And yet there's a verse in Galatians which should make us sit up and take notice. In Galatians 3.8, we're told that Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So in whatever ways the New Testament may make the gospel clearer, it's not something radically different from what has come before. It's not unexpected. The New Testament is not a brand new book. It's the completion of an unfinished story. Uh, Maybe you've had uh, the the sense you've started reading a series of books, but you've started at book two or or book three. uh, uh, And as you read on, you think, well, uh, I'm missing things here. I need to go back and read the first book. Uh, And that's the same uh, with the Old Testament. If we just started with the new, uh, we would surely have that feeling as we'll see today that we need to go back and see what these references are to Uh, we see that for example in the first chapter of Luke's gospel after the birth of John the Baptist John's father Zachariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies and says blessed be the Lord for he has remembered the oath that he swore to our father Abraham And if you're reading that and you just have the Gospel of Luke as a little booklet, if you just have a New Testament, it's, well, where do I turn back to this this oath that God swore to Abraham? I I need to go back to the Old Testament. So John the Baptist's father doesn't see the birth of John the Baptist as the beginning of a brand new era. But rather he sees it as the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham 2,000 years before. Uh, I've put a quote on your handout from John Stott. Uh, wrote many helpful Bible commentaries. He, he once said, it may be truly said without exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are, are an outworking of these promises of God to Abraham. 
So what we're looking at today, we, we need to understand to make sense of the rest of the Old Testament and even the whole New Testament. Abraham's name is mentioned 75 times in the New Testament. And again, we need this background to understand those 75 New Testament references. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, we're going to see two things that were true of God's dealings with Abraham, uh, which are still true of God's dealings with his people today. Uh, the, the little children's song that, that you may have heard uh, sum, sums it up. F- Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them uh, and so are you. Uh, it's a, a simple little song but, but it talks about this, this unbroken uh, continuity between the two testaments. Uh, God's people in Abraham's day, they were a chosen people and so are we. And God's people in Abraham's day, they were a covenant people, uh, and so are we. Uh, And those are our two headings this morning. Uh, So firstly, God's people are a chosen people. God's people are a chosen people. In the first uh, two chapters of Genesis, everything is perfect. God creates a world with no pain or sin or death. Adam and Eve enjoy a a blissful relationship with each other and an unspoilt relationship with God. Uh, But Genesis 3 is a turning point. Adam and Eve sin and everything changes. And things don't start to go downhill slowly. Things move almost immediately from unspoiled creation to utter carnage. In Genesis 4, one of Adam and Eve's two sons kills the other. Uh, Later in the same chapter, uh, Cain's descendant Lamech boasts about how many people he has killed. Uh, If you want to know the the origin of serial killers... uh, People are asking today, what turns a a nurse into a a serial killer? Well, we have the answer in the first chapters of Genesis. It is the entrance of sin into the world. It is the impact, the influence of Satan. Uh, By Genesis 6, God tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Genesis 7, Noah and his family enter the ark and in the next chapter they emerge into what could be called a new world. But it is no fresh start. In Genesis 9, Noah gets drunk, perhaps accidentally, perhaps not. He passes out naked, one of his sons mocks him. In Genesis 11, the people shake their fists at God and his commandment to fill the earth and subdue it. And they do that by building a tower. They want to stay where they are, build a tower and a city and make a name for themselves. And in short, the Bible's teaching is really the polar opposite of the theory of evolution. 
Evolution says that we begin primitive and are continually advancing. But the Bible says that man began at his physical and spiritual peak, but ever since has been degenerating. And the, the, the physical degeneration may have, may have taken time and generation after generation, but the spiritual part of that degeneration w- was not a slow, gradual process. It doesn't go from smaller sins over the centuries to bigger sins. It goes from the very first sin to murder in almost the blink of an eye. So that's the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Then in Genesis 12, God does something very significant. He calls Abraham. God is going to make a people for himself. He's already spoken back in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Humanity is going to be divided into two groups. And God is going to begin that process by taking one man and making him the father of many nations. As we're told in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 17. Yes, God is going to focus in on one family, one nation as they'll become the nation of Israel. But from the very beginning, God's calling of Abraham was part of a plan that would see the scattered nations, the nations that have been scattered at Babel, as part of a plan to see them brought together through the gospel. God is going narrow here, but his purposes were never narrow. God is going narrow so that one day he, would, he could go wide. And the man that God is is going to use in a major way to do that, uh, to begin that, is Abraham. So why why did God choose Abraham in particular? Did God look around and choose the, the one person on earth with most potential? Not at all. Abraham had nothing uh, by which to recommend himself to God. Do you know how old Abraham was when God chose him? He was 75. And God was going to call this 75-year-old to travel to a new country and be the father of many nations. A 75-year-old childless man with a barren wife doesn't really fit the job description of someone who will start a new nation So God doesn't choose Abraham because he is the most suitable candidate. But it gets worse because Joshua 24 verse 2 tells that Abraham's family served other gods. Perhaps we would like to imagine Abraham as someone who had been standing up to the idolatry all around him. And God says, well, well, this guy has potential, I'll choose him. But that's not what the Bible says. Rather, it says that Abraham was an idol worshipper who God called to himself. Now, that did not sit easily with the Jews. 
Uh, the Jews have a book called Jubilees, which pictures a 14-year-old Abraham understanding the errors of pagan worship uh, and stopping worshipping idols. Abraham then tells his father to stop worshipping him. Uh, and finally, when he turns 60, he burns them all. But it's not in the Bible. The Bible simply says, They served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham. This is what the Bible calls a grace. Maybe we look around our community and think, who is the most likely to believe and will focus on them? But as a starting point here, God doesn't take the most uh, likely candidate. He takes idol worshippers and he saves them. Uh, Grace is one of those words that we we threw around a lot uh, with perhaps without understanding what it means. But this is grace in action. It is God's undeserved favour. Boys and girls, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Maybe you you do something good and you earn a prize, a reward. Well, that's not really grace because you've earned it. But grace is giving you, giving you something that you haven't earned, that you could never earn. And God would later remind those descended from Abraham that he hadn't chosen them because they deserved it. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And it is the same today. If you're a Christian today, it's because the Lord has loved you and chosen you. Uh, You uh, chose him because he first chose you. We love him because he first loved us. Paul tells the church in Ephesus that God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. There was nothing in us to make him love us. The Bible isn't like the sound of music. What do I mean by that? Well, in the sound of music, Maria sings, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's what most people think Christianity is about. Uh, That in order to get to heaven we have to do some good work. That Christianity is about being nice, giving to charity, going to church. Uh, And if we do enough, hopefully God will accept us in the end. And if we get to heaven we'll be able to look back and say, Well yes, uh, I must have done something good to get here. But the Bible says no. There's nothing we could do to earn God's favour. God simply chose us and sent his son to die for us. As Robert Murray McShane put it, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee. Some Christians struggle with the freeness of God's choice. They can't argue with uh, that verse I quoted in Ephesians which says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, uh, before we had done anything bad or good. 
But they'll say, well, well yes, but that means that, that God chose us because he could see into the future uh, and he knew that we would choose him. Uh, so he looked into the future, he saw that we would choose him uh, and then he chose us. But if God chooses us based on our choice, then what is it that gets us into heaven? It, it's our choice. It, it's no longer grace. And on top of that, if God has to look into the future, see how we will react, and then base his actions on that, well, God isn't sovereign. We are. God has to look at, look at what we are going to do and then base his decision on that. Now, the Bible's teaching here has to be handled carefully. If this is new to you, you, you might have a whole host of questions uh, and nobody's going to steamroll over you for asking them. Uh, but we believe Romans 9 is clear. He has mercy on who, whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Uh, and I, I was really struck uh, talking to, to Mormons at the door recently, uh, talking about this verse, uh, uh, talking about Romans 9, and they just, they wouldn't really argue against it, but they just said, well, that's not the God I believe in. They didn't have, have a response to it, but they just, they didn't want to believe it. And of course, it's not the God that they, they believe in. So, so what are we saying with all this? Well, to sum it up, Abraham had not done anything to deserve God calling him, and neither have we. Neither have we. And however long we have been Christians for, we need to remember that. Uh, yes, our lives may be very different now from those around us, but if so, that is only by God's grace. The Bible is one unified story. People are saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament in the same way. As we'll see more fully in our next point, Abraham was saved because he trusted God's promise. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, that he saw it by faith and was glad. Abraham was saved by God's sovereign choice through faith in the promised Saviour to come. And we are saved by God's sovereign choice through faith in the promised Saviour who has already come. And that all means that if we are believers in Jesus Christ this morning, we have more in common with this man Abraham who lived 4,000 years ago than we do with our next door neighbour who doesn't love Jesus. God hasn't changed. His plans and purposes haven't changed. The way he works in the world hasn't changed. In Abraham's day, God's people were a chosen people. And it's the same today. So God's people, Old Testament and New, are a chosen people. Secondly, God's people are a covenant people. A covenant people. How important do you think the word covenant is in describing why Jesus came? I think it would be fair to say that for many Christians, the word rarely, if ever, enters their thinking. On the night Jesus was betrayed and he ate the Last Supper with his disciples, he took the cup in his hands and said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And many Christians could put their, their finger over that word covenant and it wouldn't make any difference. This is my blood which is poured out for many. It still makes sense if you, if you blot out the word covenant. And yet, just hours before his death, that word is the word Jesus uses to explain what going to the cross would achieve. We've already thought about Zachariah's prophecy before John the Baptist is born in Luke 1. And in anticipation of the birth of Jesus, Zachariah said, He, he God, has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So, so why did Jesus come to earth? Well, here's the answer of John the Baptist's father. Jesus came to earth because God remembered the covenant that he swore to Abraham. Why did Jesus have to die? Here's Jesus' answer. So that the blood of the covenant might be poured out. So what is this covenant? And how does Jesus' death uh, 2,000 years after Abraham tie in with God's promises to Abraham? Uh, Was Abraham not just a man who was interested in having a a big physical family living in a promised land and if all he had was lots of children and grandchildren and lived in in a land that he could call his own, he would be happy? Uh, Was Abraham not just interested in physical things? Uh, Well, not, not according to the book of Hebrews. Uh, that he longed for a better country. So God's covenant with Abraham, at its most basic level, a covenant is an agreement between two people or two parties uh, with each side having certain obligations. So marriage is a covenant and so is God's relationship to human beings. God relates to us through covenant Uh, The book of Hosea, uh, chapter 6, it tells that God's relationship with Adam in the Garden of Eden was a covenant relationship, Hosea 6, 7. Yes, the word covenant isn't used until the time of Noah, but the word sin isn't used in Genesis 3, and I think we can all agree that Adam and Eve sinned. In fact, I saw someone trying to argue this week that The serpent in Genesis 3 isn't Satan because we're not told that he is. Uh, So to say that that we have to have the the word used then and there uh, to to explain something, it it falls apart when you look at it. And and the Old Testament itself, looking back in, in Eden, Uh, Hosea says of God's people in his own day, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So Adam was in some sort of covenant relationship with God. It's the Bible's testimony. What were the terms of that covenant? Well, we can work it out from what life looked like for them before they sinned in contrast to what it looked like afterwards. As long as Adam and Eve obeyed God's rules, they would be his people, they would live in his place, and they would experience his presence and blessing uh, as we see in the handout on the top table however to to quote Hosea again Adam and Eve broke the covenant 
When we left them last time, they had disobeyed God's rule. They were no longer God's people. They were banished from God's place and no longer experiencing his presence and blessing. But in the days of Abraham, God's plan of salvation takes another step forward. And again, it will be through a covenant. Uh, we read Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So is God starting from scratch again? Uh, there was a covenant with Adam. Adam disobeyed. So I'll make it a completely new covenant with Abraham. Well, look what's on offer in Genesis 17. God gives Abraham a command and makes three promises. And those promises are about a people, a place, and God's blessing and presence. Uh, They're all the elements that were there in the beginning. Genesis 17, 5 and 6, God makes a promise about a people, about a people. He tells Abraham, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. God also promises Abraham a place. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 8. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. And he gives Abraham rules. Verse 10 of chapter 17. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God also makes promises about blessing and presence. In the middle of verse 7 there he promises to be God to you and your offspring after you. And all that is to say that God's promises to Abraham are not a, 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 a tearing up the original script and beginning again. It's not that Satan has so derailed God's original plan so that God has to start again. These are the same blessings that Adam threw away being promised to Abraham. Maybe you're wondering, well that's all well and good, but Adam and Eve didn't get on too well at keeping God's covenant last time around. How will it be any different with Abraham? And Abraham himself had doubts. He obeys God. He reaches the promised land. But when he gets there, he doesn't own any of it. And he still has no children. And chapter 15, Abraham asks, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Then, well, God, I'm here in the promised land, but it still looks very unlikely. How could it be guaranteed that things wouldn't go wrong again? Well, clearly entrusting the success of this plan to man was a no-go. So God makes it clear to Abraham that from now on the covenant would not be kept by a man, but by God himself. And this is what this strange ceremony in chapter 15 is about. Though in fact, while it sounds strange to us, Abraham would have known what was going on. Covenants weren't just things that God's people made. Uh, Kings of of the nations around would make covenants with each other. Uh, But when they made a covenant agreement, they would do more than simply shake hands. 
They would cut animals in pieces and they would walk through the middle of them. Why? Well, it was a graphic way of saying, if I break this covenant, may I be cut in pieces like these animals. And in fact, the word translated in our Bibles as make a covenant is literally cut a covenant. The word cut is used. Uh, This cutting of the animals, it it was central to what a covenant was. Uh, So much so that, that people would talk about cutting a covenant instead of making a covenant. And that is what happens here. Except there's one big difference. Only God walks between the pieces. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch at the end of chapter 15, they represent God. But rather than getting Abraham to walk through the pieces as well, God puts him into a deep sleep. And that is God saying that he himself would take full responsibility for the covenant being kept. And this is the big difference between the covenant with Adam and now the covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Adam demanded perfect obedience. As soon as he sinned, the blessings of people, place, presence uh, were taken away from him. But now when Abraham will sin, as he will go on to do in big ways, there will be a way back. God isn't going to start again with someone else. And the reason that there will be a way back is because God himself will take on himself the curses of a broken covenant. God will take on himself the curses of a broken covenant. And how will God do that? In the person of his son. That is why Jesus came to bear the curse. Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Uh, The curse that should have fallen on us. Uh, That's why John the Baptist's father saw Jesus coming as a fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. That's why Jesus said that his blood was covenant blood. Because Jesus came to a people who had broken the covenant yet again and again. But his blood being shed would fulfill what had been demanded by the animals being cut in two. God had guaranteed that the covenant would be kept by swearing on his own life as it were. And here Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to pay the penalty of a broken covenant. Now I realise that We've covered a lot of ground this morning. It may be new to many of you. Uh, And so as we begin to wrap things up, one important question to ask is, how does all this apply to us? Well, it applies because these two covenants still represent the only way for human beings to be accepted by God. The first covenant with Adam required perfect and complete obedience. But since Adam we are born in sin, we cannot keep it. The second covenant really started in Genesis 3. It was then spelt out in detail to Abraham and it continues even down to our own way. 
And it requires not perfect obedience, but belief. Or maybe a better way of putting it would be, it requires belief in the perfect obedience of Jesus on our behalf. Genesis fifteen six, we read it earlier. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is a, a hugely significant verse. It's quoted five times in the New Testament. Three times in the book of Romans. Why is this Old Testament verse quoted so often in the New? Because New Testament believers are saved in the same way as Old Testament believers. By grace through faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe and it is counted to us as righteousness. When Abraham sinned, he trusted in the promise that God himself would fill the conditions of the covenant. That God would somehow take on himself the punishment for the broken covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus tells us that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Because the coming of Jesus, it wasn't plan B. It was a fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham. So how can you share in God's covenant promises? Only by faith. A faith which is itself a gift of God. Just like if someone gave you a ticket for a concert that was worth £100. You hadn't done anything to deserve it. You hadn't given them any money for it. When you get to the door, well, you still have to show the ticket. But showing them the ticket doesn't merit you entry. Your entry has already been bought. That's what faith is like. Jesus himself has already paid the price. Faith is taking him at his word and putting all our trust in him. So that when we get to the door of heaven, as it were, we say, well, yes, I don't deserve it. I can't pretend that I deserve it. But I have faith in Jesus that he has paid the price. So have you done that? Have you taken Jesus at his word and put your trust in him? Of course God's promise to Abraham of an earthly promised land. It was just a foretaste of that true promised land on the other side of the Jordan. Heaven itself. So are you going there? There is no more important question. Paul says in Galatians, those who are of faith are children of Abraham. Are you a son or daughter of Abraham this morning? Not by physical descent, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If so, then the New Testament says that you are also a son or daughter of God. Amen. Well, let's close by singing one of the songs that God has given us, which speaks about this, Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verses, verses 4 through 8, on page 254. In verse 4, the writer describes God's people as the seed or the children of Abraham. Um, because the Bible is one story, that's still a description of us today, as, as Paul himself says in Galatians. Uh, in verse 6, we, we, we see something we didn't have time to get into today. Uh, 
and that is that the covenant with Abraham wasn't a one-off. There are later covenants in the Bible, uh, but they are all built on God's promise to Abraham. Uh, Even the the new covenant uh, prophesied in Jeremiah, which is why Zechariah could see Jesus coming as a fulfillment of a promise. He doesn't say God's promise to Isaac, God's promise to Jeremiah, but God's promise to Abraham, because uh, that was the, the promise on which everything else was built. And then in verse 8, we sing of Canaan, the promised land. But Canaan was only ever a down payment. Even Abraham looked forward to something greater. Hebrews 11.10 For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And as we sing these words, as children of Abraham by faith, we too can look forward to what he looked forward to, the, the true and final promised land. So Psalm 105, 4 to 8, page 254, will stand and sing praise.